Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I'm Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Today's episode will focus on where reproductive justice is heading. Two such avenues forward are the inclusion of the LGBTQ community and the disability community within the reproductive justice conversation, both of which have been overlooked historically. I want this episode to not only highlight the necessity of including these communities within these larger conversations, but because, so often, history and even some contemporary scholarship focuses on heteronormativity, the gender binary, and the able-bodied. These stories are important to our understanding of the human experience. Therefore, I hope that by producing this episode, you, the listener, might challenge the status quo and make the world a more accessible and inclusive place. I, Isabel, will be the main host of this episode. In order to discuss these vast communities, I will be focusing on two people who made significant contributions to current and future activism. Today's episode will focus on the life and contributions of Marsha P. Johnson, a black trans rights activist, and Judith Heumann, a disability rights activist. This episode will be split into two sections. The first half of the episode will focus on Marsha P. Johnson, her life, activism, and some of the events before and after her death. And the second half will focus on Judith Heumann and her activism and experiences while also providing more context on disability rights and the continued fight for those rights today. To begin our discussion of the contributions of both of these individuals, some historical context is needed. There is a general consensus that the rise of the LGBTQ plus community and attention paid to it by the government started to increase during and after the events of the Stonewall Rebellion. Before the 1960s, laws were enacted which made homosexuality illegal. In fact, in every state but Illinois, homosexual sex was illegal. Stonewall, though the event itself didn't necessarily enact changes, began to challenge people's beliefs and perceptions about the LGBTQ community and activism around that community, though it had occurred in the past, seemed to experience a shift, making the community much more recognizable, especially in regards to media coverage. The Stonewall Uprising, which began on June 28, 1969, saw a series of events and protests between the police and the LGBTQ protesters, lasting almost a week. At the time of the famous Stonewall Rebellion, the inn itself was a popular establishment often frequented by members of the LGBTQ community. According to Titus Montalvo, who was a hairdresser and makeup artist during the events of Stonewall, quote, the majority of people at Stonewall were either drag queens or gay men of color, end quote. Additionally, because the LGBTQ community was the target of discrimination, for a host of reasons that cannot be explored completely in this episode, bars that served the community were often raided, and Stonewall was no exception. Notably, Marsha P. Johnson was one of the people suspected of being at Stonewall on the night of the raid and has been cited as being one of the first to resist the officers during the demonstrations that followed. Before I talk about Marsha P. Johnson further, I would like to make a note about my language. Language in the 60s and 70s was not as nuanced as it is today, 
And because I do not want to misidentify or misgender Johnson in any way, I will be using terms that she herself and other friends of hers used at the time, such as transvestite. Many of the sources I consulted refer to Johnson as being transgender, and while I do not have any issues with that, she did not identify with that term explicitly. So, for the purposes of this episode, I will be using language that she used to identify herself. Johnson identified as gay, a transvestite, and a drag queen, and used she-her pronouns. The term transgender was not a common term used in her lifetime. Marsha P. Johnson was born Malcolm Michaels Jr. on August 24, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Describing herself as being, quote, a nobody from Nowheresville, Johnson, a transvestite, moved to New York's Greenwich Village, where she was a drag performer and a sex worker. Often recognizable from the floral headdresses and flashy outfits, she was a central figure in New York's gay liberation movement for almost 25 years, being a very vocal and outspoken activist. The gay liberation movement sought to fight against the discrimination against gays and lesbians and utilized aggressive tactics in an effort to achieve their goals of ending that discrimination. Besides being an activist for the LGBTQ community, Johnson's efforts also focused on LGBTQ youths, specifically trans and gay individuals. As it was a common practice for LGBTQ people to be kicked out of their homes simply for being who they were, Johnson and fellow activist Sylvia Rivera founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, which was created to help LGBTQ youths who were homeless. Unfortunately, Johnson's career as an activist was cut short. On July 6, 1992, Johnson's body was found in the Hudson River. Police ruled that Johnson's death had been a suicide, but many members of the community argued against this, citing violence against trans people as a common occurrence and demanding resources be allocated to discovering the truth about what happened to Marsha P. Johnson. As of 2019, the case has yet to be updated, leaving Johnson's case and what happened to her a mystery. Despite this, Johnson's memory and her acts of defiance live on. Her significance to the LGBTQ movement, including the creation of the Star House, and her constant want to make the world a better place, specifically for LGBTQ youths, are remembered in such films as The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, a documentary made in 2017 that captures who Johnson was and explores what happened to her both before and after her death. I highly recommend this documentary if you want to learn more about Marsha P. Johnson. Before we connect Johnson's work and the LGBTQ rights movement to the continued evolution of the reproductive justice movement, I'd also like to introduce an activist in the disability community named Judith Judy Human. Because I cannot discuss everything that Human has done throughout her life, the list is rather extensive but very important, I wanted to specifically talk about the 504 sit-in and the Americans with Disabilities Act, as Human was influential in both cases. Born in 1947, Human contracted polio when she was 18 months old, leaving her unable to walk. Before a time when accessibility was talked about as often as it is today, if at all, Human describes the necessity of having to be her own advocate and, in her TED Talk, she states, quote, We needed to fight people's view that if you had a disability, you needed to be cured. Equality was not part of the equation, end quote. In her talk, Human describes a world that alienated her and, to add insult to injury, she was not allowed to go to school because the buildings were not accessible and she did not go to school in an actual building until she was nine years old. 
The conversation around accessibility in all areas, from schools to public businesses to necessary accommodations, became more of a public talking point in the 1970s, such as with Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which, quote, prohibits discrimination based on disability and applies to organizations or employers who receive federal dollars, including schools and federal agencies. This led to one of the largest sit-ins in U.S. history, which occurred in 1977. Lasting almost an entire month, the 504 sit-in saw over 150 people with disabilities refusing to leave the Health, Education, and Welfare, also known as the HEW, offices in San Francisco, LA, Washington, D.C., and Denver. To the protesters, Section 504 was more than just a section of a law. It would effectively help to provide disabled people with more opportunities in federally funded facilities and eliminate, or attempt to eliminate, acts of discrimination against disabled people simply because they were disabled. Another aspect of the sit-in that I want to highlight, beyond its importance of demonstrating the fight for civil rights for disabled people, is the fact that so many people participated in this sit-in. Not only were disabled people making a stand that discrimination would not be tolerated, but members of other social movements, such as the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Panthers, were involved with this demonstration. On the 11th day of the sit-in, a congressional hearing was held in the San Francisco Federal Building where Congressman Miller and Burton arrived to determine and discuss the conflict between the HEW and the disability community. The HEW's representative, Eugene Eidenberg, delivered testimony on behalf of Washington. The secretary of the HEW, Joseph A. Califano Jr., was not present at the hearings. After being questioned on the nature of HEW's deterrence from signing 504 into law, Eidenberg, in a fluster, uttered the words, separate but equal. This abhorrent statement caused an uproar from protesters outside, and, clearly affected by Eidenberg's statement about separate but equal, Judy Human delivered her testimony. The harassment, the um, lack of equity that has been provided for disabled individuals and that now is even being discussed by the administration is so intolerable that I can't quite put it into words. I can tell you that every time you raise issues of separate but equal, the outrage of disabled individuals across this country is going to continue. It is going to be ignited. There will be more takeovers of buildings until finally maybe you begin to understand our position. We will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. We want the law enforced. We want no more segregation. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. After the hearing, a delegation of the protesters was sent to Washington, D.C., putting pressure on Califano and then-President Carter to sign 504. On April 28, 1977, Section 504 was finally signed and implemented. 504 eventually led to the foundations of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which, according to the New York Times, quote, extended the protections of 504 to all private institutions and workplaces when it was enacted 13 years later, end quote. Why, then, are these two movements and the prominent figures I mentioned in today's episode important to our conversations about reproductive justice? Before I delve into this, I wanted to remind you of the three principles of reproductive justice, the right to not have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to parent a child in a safe and healthy environment. In relation to that, 
Members of the LGBTQ plus community, according to the National LGBTQ Task Force, quote, need access to reproductive health care, including contraception, abortion, assisted reproductive services, HIV care, pregnancy care, and parenting resources, end quote. In addition, reproductive health care, which is often women-centric, encompasses far more than just heterosexual women. It encompasses, quote, lesbian and bisexual women, transgender men, intersex, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals, end quote. Recently, the LGBTQ plus community has faced backlash in terms of the right to have a child, and a recent Supreme Court ruling highlights this issue. In 2018, Philadelphia's Department of Human Services examined two of its foster care provider agencies for, quote, potential violations of the city's anti-discrimination laws, end quote. The agencies were allegedly refusing to work with same-sex couples who sought to be foster parents. One of these agencies was a religious nonprofit organization called Catholic Social Services, or CSS. CSS eventually sued the city, quote, claiming the Constitution gives it the right to opt out of the non-discrimination requirement, end quote. After a lower court and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Philadelphia's favor, CSS took the case to the Supreme Court for review. The Supreme Court then unanimously reversed the decision of the Court of Appeals, saying that the CSS had a right to free exercise under the First Amendment, which allows it to continue refusing to certify same-sex couples as adoption-slash-foster parent candidates. Thus, the decision of the Supreme Court and similar decisions make this case a reproductive justice one as it clearly violates one of the core principles, the right to have a child. For couples or single individuals who want to have children but are unable to become pregnant for various reasons, adoption and or fostering is one of the few ways for that choice to be realized. Although this is only one example of the backlash, it is undeniable that the fight for LGBTQ rights and equality is ongoing. The disability rights and justice movements also warrant attention when discussing their relationships to reproductive justice. According to ReproAction, a direct action group that focuses on increased access to abortion and advancing reproductive justice, disability rights is defined as, quote, equal treatment, equal access, and equal opportunities for people with disabilities, end quote. As such, reproductive justice has many intersections with disability rights and justice, including autonomy, bodily and otherwise, respect, and parenting. The culture of ableism in the U.S. makes the intersections between the disability community and reproductive justice even more vital. Ableism is the belief that able-bodied people, in other words, people who do not have a disability of any kind, are superior and more valuable than their disabled counterparts. In addition to this culture of ableism, disabled people are often seen as asexual and dependent on able-bodied people for their various needs, beliefs which inherently deny these people autonomy. Additionally, people with disabilities, especially those who have been viewed as women, have often been targets of forced sterilizations, being seen as unfit parents. For more information on forced sterilizations, and particularly the Buck v. Bell case, please check out our third episode. The only way to effectively make change is for people to be united on multiple fronts. For those who may not be part of the LGBTQ community or the disabled community, it is important to be effective allies and advocates and listen to the voices and stories of others that are so often ignored. And I want to stress listening. Really listening and hearing the stories of others can help to create change in the world. After all, that is a part of what this podcast seeks to do. 
to further people's understanding of reproductive justice by sharing stories and experiences of people and groups who have been historically undervalued and who continue to face oppression. So Isabel, we have come to the end of this project. I can't believe it. It's episode six. It's our last episode. So we wanted to have a bit of a conversation to kind of reflect on, you know, our experience with the project and what we hope our audience gets out of this podcast. So I wondered if you wanted to start. So I think one of the things that we hope that people get out of this is the importance of the topics that we've discussed, especially in relation to reproductive justice, and about how analyzing, a lot of our episodes analyzed histories of the past, so about how how those histories that we've sort of reframed in terms of reproductive justice, that I hope that people understand that that (laughs) in and of itself is important, and that those histories that we're examining, that many of them which weren't really discussed prior to, I don't know, the past 50 years that that's important yeah definitely i think too one of the beauties of this project is that we really got to investigate things that mean something to us and really reframe them for ourselves through an rj lens which is for me has been really invigorating and exciting and kind of getting me excited about really applying reproductive justice to a plethora of other histories, for example, but also, you know, present day issues and news stories, all sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. Would you like to close this sort of little section? Yeah, I would like to just say how much I've enjoyed this project and the process that we've had throughout. Definitely a labor of love. And thank you also to the listeners, right? Because we made this with people in mind to hear it. And so we hope you enjoyed it. And we hope to maybe make some more episodes in the future. We'll have to see. We hope you enjoyed listening to our final episode of A Step Toward Justice. We also hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast and the issues it covered and understood a bit more about the complexity of reproductive justice. As always, thank you to my co-host, Dr. Justina Licata. If you would like to see images and resources related to this episode, check out our Instagram account at A Step Toward Justice Podcast. I highly recommend that you check out Judy Human's book, Being Human, as it offers more insights into her life than I could provide in this episode. I also recommend that you watch the documentaries The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson and Crip Camp, as they provide additional material for what was discussed in this episode. Both of these documentaries can be found on Netflix. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and our series on reproductive justice. We hope you found this information enlightening.